Welcome to Monday Sportif. Follow us on Twitter at at Monday Sportif LDN. Welcome to Monday Sportif, where you can now find this podcast on the Newsly app. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing, stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports, science, to Bitcoin and the Kardashians. It will find you the latest articles and read them to you. And they have podcasts, Rick. As well, explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. Our podcast, Monday Sportive Podcast, is there too. That's right. Now, download and use the Newsly app for free uh, following the link www.newsly.me or from the link in the description below. And we have a promo code for one month's free premium subscription. Get on it. Now. Hello. And welcome to episode 12 of Monday Sportif. How you doing, Rob? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. How are you? Not too bad at all. What have we got coming up this week? We've got Sport This Song, mm. which is our feature on uh, boxing. Yeah. Um, with Liam O'Hare, who is now 2-0. Yeah. And we also have author John Sperling, as we talk about his new book, Get It On, The 70s and How It Rocked Football. Brilliant. Yeah, it should be good. It should be good to catch up with Liam and, you know, see how um, see how it went. Obviously, we watched it, but we'll go through um, what it was like for the man himself and um, go, catch up on a few of the uh, the fight nights that have been on recently. I think Brooke Khan and um, I think we've uh, probably got a few uh, different opinions on uh, the Taylor Catchwell one as well. <laughs> I think we have. So uh, let's get into it. Let's go. Nice one. Welcome back to Sport This Song, which is the Monday Sportif boxing section with my co-host, Rob Shrew from Twitter Boxing. How are you, Rob? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Cheers for having me. It's excellent to have you on, as always. And again, we've got Liam O'Hare, Boxing 2 and O, is back on the show to tell us about his recent fight. How are you, Liam? Are you OK? I'm good, thank you, pal. Thanks for having me back. Excellent. The undefeated... <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but first and foremost, Liam, two and zero. Congratulations on a great victory in the ring. How how do you feel about? How did it go? Yeah, I feel good. I felt I felt it went well. Um, I do feel if I'd uh, had had the full length of fight camp that I was that that I would normally have, I I could have probably put my way in the third or fourth. But um, mm. it's good to get the rounds under my belt anyway. Um, and it's good to obviously. It was almost good to test myself in terms of the um, conditioning in a short space of time sort of thing about it. So I'm just happy to get the 2-0 really and be on to the next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you fought the contest at middleweight against Josh Hodkins. I I, I watched the fight on, on YouTube and just to just to say, I mean, your, your ring craft, awareness, punch accuracy, your punch selection... For me, it was a boxing masterclass. I don't know about you, Rob, if you saw the fight. Yeah, and first of all, thanks for sending the link as well, because um, I didn't think we were going to be able to watch you, to be honest, Liam. But then yeah, I found I out about sure this link. But, um, but yeah, it was really good, mate. Um, 
that uppercut couldn't miss, could it? <laughs> I don't know. A couple of them went a bit, a bit wild. Uh, but, uh... Maybe, maybe the last <laughs> round you were a bit tired. But honestly, mate, yeah, it was very, very good. Um, yeah, no, the boys, and... are, the boys down sparring will tell you that's my favourite shot. They go, yeah, yeah. I'm always picking them up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just looks so effective, like that. Just you couldn't miss it, honestly, mate. With a step to the side and the uppercut, it was you were ripping him apart. And like I think you mentioned there, that um, you know, if you hadn't, if if you'd got the um, uh, the weight down a bit. Uh, a bit easier, shall we say? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in. I think you had him wobbled in the third round, and I think he literally got saved by the bell at his back end of the round, wasn't it? When um, when he started to go. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't know if it showed so well on the camera, but I actually the one of the uppercuts I landed in the first round, I, I felt him. I felt him going then. Yeah. But um, I sort of kept composed because I, I thought if I spring on him now. And I burn all my energy up. I'm going to be absolutely flagging in the fourth. So I thought I'd just take it slow, build into yeah. it, and go through yeah. the gears. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was good as well to sort of know that I wasn't as fit, have a game plan in my head, and then stick to it in, under the pressure as well. So it's, it's good to know that I can can do that. Did you well. feel that the um, the weight drain um, got you towards the end of a fight, or do you feel that it, oh, you, okay, you managed it? Okay? My coach is going to kill me. I shouldn't even be saying this, right? But. Um, <laughs> I uh, actually the, the night of the fight, uh, my coach came into my room after weighing and everything. He came in and he just saw a pile of pizza boxes. He wasn't happy, <laughs> so <laughs> oh I, I didn't refuel right for the fight either. Mm. Um, I just, it's just so hard when you've been starving yourself. It's just yeah. you know you just you just want to get it in. You, How much but, do you um, think you put on between um, the weighing and the when the first I, bell went? So if we're talking, you know, like say kilos, I'd say I'd, I weighed in at seventy two. Mm. I'd say. By the time I was fighting, once I had all the fluid on board and food in, I'd say I was at least 76 kilo, I reckon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at wow. least, yeah. What, um, yeah, what, what I was going to say, Liam, is um, obviously your your footwork in the ring created those angles, especially for bringing that uppercut in. You know, you sort of, you, I, I watched as you sort of, your foot movement, you sort of worked around him and then brought the sort of upper, uppercut in. Hmm. Um losing all that weight obviously does affect strength but it's only a second fight are, are you confident that with the more fights and obviously that the sort of better sort of organized camps that you the, the power or the strength might come come into effect a bit more yeah i'm hoping so so i'm when i get back in the gym on thursday i think i'm going to go go straight to town working on the on the snappiness of my shots because i you know i've what i've taken away from that one is i i had the angles to make it work uh, if I've been flicking in snappier shots with more power on top of the angles, I think I'm going to be a very hard opponent to deal with. Um, I mean, even without the power, it was it was obviously frustrating for my opponent. But I think with the power, it's gonna it's gonna be what I'm hoping to be one to watch. So yeah, I I, I think that the, some of the right cross uh, cross work that you did was it's quite spiteful to be honest. <laughs> uh, you, I think you're talking it down there in terms of you need to get some more snap in your shots, but some well, of those I, right I like crosses to, I like, were horrible. Yeah, I like I like to look at what I can work on, what can I, yeah, what I can take from take from fights. It's too easy to look at look at the um the good bits sometimes. So yeah, I try yeah. and I try and um you know take take mm. away what I can from each one. Um, But yeah, no, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I felt like I did what I set out to do. I did a bit more boxing because I don't, you probably didn't have me enough to catch my first fight. But uh, in the first fight, I was very sort of going for power, 
coming forwards every single round. But this this fight, obviously, I, I sort of took 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 the back foot approach because obviously with my fitness, I thought yeah. that was going to be the best way to go about it, and it has really mm. paid off. Um, yeah, I, I think I remember you saying that against Kevin McCauley, you just literally threw caution to the wind, and you, you were just pinging off of his head or. or whole fight that's it of. yeah it was yeah. very it was it was less of a less of a boxing class and more of a more of a brawl but um <laughs> i think the nerves got to me a little bit in the first fight as well so it was good that i managed to keep my composure for this one yeah i was going to ask you about that about if you were much calmer for you for your second fight because you only have one debut don't you and um, that's it. You, yeah, you know, yeah. did you did you feel a big difference in in how you felt before the fight yeah, I did. I felt a lot more, a lot more composed. And my my friend from Hereford as well. He was on before me, uh, Cliff. Mm. Um, and I saw him, and he was just so composed, taking everything so easy. He actually he put his opponent down in the first round with a jab. Yeah. And even after that, he just came back in, didn't go hell for leather, kept really cool and composed. And I think I watching that straight before I got in, I was like. That's how I want to do it. That that yeah. was good. Yeah, so yeah. I almost took something from him and was like, it helped me put it into my my fight afterwards. I, I think also with that, I mean, you, you've got the gym, you've got the time in the gym, but I suppose nothing can beat actually being in the ring on fight night. It's a different, it's a different kind of experience and fitness to to the gym, isn't it? Because like yeah. the, the, the gym's your safe area, and it's watching like your your sort of buddies in the gym performing like that you can only take positives from it can't you that's it 100 percent. and obviously he's fighting a much heavier weight from me than me and he, he, he was my sparring partner for the whole of camp because obviously it was hard to get sparring away uh on the short notice sort of thing um, yeah but yeah but I'm, I'm buzzed for him as well he, he put on a really good performance as well what what weight does he campaign at uh so he was at cruiserweight for this Bloody one hell. <laughs> yeah that's what i mean big um, yeah but he, he's a little bit more inexperienced in in terms of amateur experience but he's an interesting story as well, actually, because he, he's a he's a forty years old. Yeah, you wouldn't guess it looking at him. The guy. Oh, was this the lad you mentioned on the last pod? Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. But he you wouldn't guess it looking at him, and he, you know you'd have thought he's about twenty five, thirty, looking at his body. But um, mm. wow. But yeah, he's got that composed head on his shoulders. So yeah, he's going to yeah. be one to watch as well. One, one, one to watch then. Maybe, maybe a um, someone else to come on the podcast in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, our, our coach has really, really put us through the put us through the through the trials and he's starting to see the reap the rewards of it with the two of us having our pro debuts already and both coming out on top. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. City Hereford, Tony Chadwick's his name. Watch out for him as well. I'm sure he'll have some Tony more prospects Chadwick. coming. Yeah, through. we'll do. Excellent. Um, what just uh, moving on, Liam, what, um, what weight are you looking to fight in your next, in your next fight? Uh, I'm tempted to try and come down to super welter. Um, but again, we're going to just have to see, who's available and what opponents are about so it'll be super well or all middleweight because with, with, with this one i i felt like i came down and i felt weak at middleweight but i think it's because yeah. of the way i had to do the weight loss is that um, 154 yeah 154 yeah, pounds yeah i believe so yeah, yeah, yeah. um Hang on, no, I was, uh, um, I think light, I was uh, yeah light middle is 154 was, isn't it yeah i think i was 159 i think yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, but yeah, so super welter will be. I'm not sure. I'm still. I'm still working out the stone and pounds. I think, only I just think that's one five four. Yeah, light, mid, light middleweight is one five four. Yeah. yeah, so that'll be that'll be where the, the the crack is. I think for the next one. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, nice, and hopefully nice. it'll be one more four rounder, and then I can get get 
I need to I need to show my manager and stuff that I do have the fitness and it was because of a short camp. So I need to blitz these next four four rounds in the next fight and then hopefully get up to six, eight rounders. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. At what well, at what stage do you you start getting to sort of regional level? What's the process from going from um, you know, a pro debut and, and a second fight like you've had? What's the road that you have to take to take like a, a Midlands area um sort so of you know, that'll contest? be that'll be why I want to get up to the, the six to eight rounds because you need to have had a six eight rounder to qualify for the Midlands. Yeah. So that that'll be why I'll get get those rounds under my belt and then as soon as the opportunity arises I'll be jumping straight on that, that title. Superb. Yeah. Wow. Are you hoping that the next fight will be in the Midlands again? Uh, so I'm imagining it's going to be in Birmingham again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, my manager, we're not we're not tied to any one promotion, so yeah. it, it could it could be uh, that we end up going maybe down Chepstow Way or, or anything that we've got. We've our door, the doors are open at the moment. So. Yeah. Well, we've already had a chat, haven't we, mate? But um, we're going to come down to the next one. So if you can give us some notice on when it's going to be, then um, that's it. yeah, we'll be there. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it, Liam. We're we're well up for the next one. So uh, you, you've got us, you've got us hooked with your uh, boxing uh, boxing display. So oh, I'm glad. Thank but, you. I yeah, once, it, once again, Liam. Congratulations on yeah. two and zero. Oh. Hey, Liam, um, who did you have there? Because um, we heard um, we heard quite a few people shouting for you when yeah, you were having friends I was and quite... family. I was quite lucky, really, because obviously Cliff was on before me and he sold bloody loads of tickets. <laughs> uh, they all started cheering for me. So, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Nice. Yeah, no, I had I had some close friends, family. Um, yeah, I didn't do as well as, on the tickets as I have done in the past. Like my debut, I did a lot more tickets. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm actually hoping from the footage that I've got from that, that YouTube video, I think I put on a good show and yeah. I've seen it spike a lot of interest. So ho hopefully I'll do okay on the tickets the next time. Um, one more thing as well. That celebration was unreal. Oh, you got to keep it. You got to keep your roots in here. It's the double tour on there if we want to be technical. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's tapping into your old experience, eh? That's it. Exactly. Yeah. That is, I completely <laughs> forgot about that. That was uh, quite phenomenal. Um, but yeah, like, like you know, it's it's what you got to do, haven't it? You got to promote yourself. You got to put. Well, I've never seen anyone do that I'm before. not sure I'll be landed on my feet after a twelve rounder, though. No. <laughs> hey, it's it's niche. It's unique, bro, mate. You know how many fighters do the same thing all the time, and you never see that. And um, there's a everyone's got um you know, everyone's got a story, haven't they? And that's yours. That's it. It's nice to have that uh that that background in in, in my pocket, as it were, because like like you say, it keeps it interesting and keeps it exciting. Definitely, definitely, yeah, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, so moving on from that fantastic victory for Liam O'Hare, um, Rob, you were at the Amir Khan versus Kel Brook fight in the Manchester yeah. Arena on the twenty sixth. Yeah. Give us a brief under what what was the atmosphere like? It was as good as anything I've been to before, hands down. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a select few in the back of my mind, but, you know, favourites that I've gone to over the years. But yeah. um, I think just because of how long people have been waiting for it. I mean, I've never seen such an intense atmosphere when, yeah. um, you know, that moment before the, the fight um, starts, when the, the, the fighters come together, they get the instructions yeah. from the referee and then they go back to their corners. Honestly, mate, it was absolutely deafening. It was incredible. Wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, even from the television screens, it 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 looked fantastic. Yeah. What, what was you aware of? What was going on with the the, the massive issue with the gloves? Oh, the yeah, fight? yeah. I mean, um, obviously, Cal came out first, and um, 
It, me and my mate, honestly, we felt we were like at an away game because the boos for Brook were incredible. And wow. there was just me and my mate and a couple of little pockets of Brook fans going absolutely mental for him. Yeah. And it, felt, it was such a surreal experience because I, I don't dislike Amir Khan, but I, I've made it clear last time that I wanted to I wanted Brook to smash him up. Yeah. And um, he, when he come out, it, honestly, it was such a unique thing to be cheering on someone who was getting booed by 20,000 people. It was, it, it was special, you know. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously, yeah, you mentioned about the glove thing and he'd got into the ring and, you know, being in the crowd, you don't get access to the information that you would if you're watching it on TV. And yeah, I saw a lot yeah. of people crowding him for ages and, and Khan hadn't come out. And I was thinking, I'm sure they're taking his gloves off. Yeah. And then, obviously, I, I, it all I, I, became apparent. Mind games from Khan for me, that was yeah and, and i suppose for you in, in in the in the audience being there you didn't really know what was going on until we actually got in the ring whereas watching on the television we, we were sort of made yeah. aware quite quickly that there was an yeah. issue with the gloves but in hindsight i mean um certainly at that level whenever um a fighter is being gloved up um you know backstage they have a member of the opposition's team watching to make sure that there's no glove tampering or anything underhand yeah. going on. So why the hell was that signed off then? For then to, for him to have to change them again in the ring? It was a joke. I don't know. Uh, Liam, did you see any, any of that uh, controversy on the... Uh, um, I didn't. I actually I actually caught up on it afterwards and I sort of skipped to the fighting. <laughs> and, yeah, but... and, and, and on, on that note, with, with horsehair uh, gloves, is, is that an issue when it comes to... Amateur boxing, or like you know now in the pro game, is it is horsehair ever an issue? Or um, I've I've not been made aware of it because obviously uh, my level they just sort of chuck you the gloves you're wearing and you chuck them on. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I did. I wasn't aware. I've never seen anyone have to change their their gloves in the ring because they've already been signed off by the board. Um, they'd have been approved by I don't know a member of Khan's team because he would have been sat there watching Brook glove up. I, I still don't understand it, to be honest. No, and and obviously there there is an there, there's an ugly acrimony between both boxers. Yeah. I, I think they, they 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 were training in the same England camps. Um, yeah. There there was a bit of talk prior about the sparring they had, where Khan potentially schooled Brooke. But yeah. from my mind, watching from the television, and, and I suppose you as well, Rob, it was it looked like the old Kel Brook. It really was quite a sensational display, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, he looked spiteful. He looked strong. Um, it was difficult to to gauge it too much because of what Khan had left. So yeah. was it a mixture of how much um, Khan had regressed or was it the old Kel Brook? I think it was probably something in the middle, really. Um, I mean, Brook was as good as I've seen for a long time and, uh, and Khan uh, yeah. was as, po as poor as I've seen for a long time as uh, well. I but mean, um, he backed yeah, it in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kel Brook's performance, I thought, was looked like the old Kel Brook. Yeah. And also, for 35, he's in amazing shape. I mean, yeah. he, he, he looks incredible, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I thought he looked quite a lot bigger than Khan, despite the cut, to be fair. I thought he, yeah. he looked about twice the size. Yeah, there was no rehydration clause in the end either that we thought there was oh, the really? last time we chatted. So, so Brook absolutely bloomed up and he looked yeah. massive on the night, didn't he? He looked huge. Yeah, he yeah. did look big. And it, it, it was full to a catch weight, wasn't it? I think it was 149 pounds. Correct, they, yeah. They fought at in the end. So, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, uh, Khan does have a rematch clause. It was such a one sided fight. Do, do you reckon he's going to take that up? Or? There'd only be one reason why, wouldn't there? Yeah. Money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I did, I did think, um, I mean, all, all, all favour to 
Brook obviously boxed phenomenally. I did think he was loading up his shots, and I did think that maybe if Khan could have held out a little bit longer, um, yeah, he could have. We could have seen some flashier boxing once Kel got tired because he, he was putting yeah. rage into those shots, but they were connecting, yeah. so it didn't seem to matter. Yeah. What did you think of a stoppage? Did you think it was a good stoppage? Um, I thought it might have been a little premature, yeah. but at the same time, it's hard to judge it when you're not actually in the ring. And um, to be fair, Khan wasn't. He wasn't throwing. He wasn't throwing back. No. Um, but what what you did know. you think, Rob, from being there? Um, I thought it was perfectly timed. I mean, Khan probably would have preferred to have gone out on his shield. Um, but I think the ref has definitely saved him for another day there. I mean, he was he was beating him up consistently for a good couple of rounds before that, wasn't he? And um, yeah. it was an accumulation of things rather than one specific big shot. Um, I think he hit him with an uppercut on the um, uh, up against the ropes, and then I think the ref had seen enough, hadn't he? And I, I think with the age of both the fighters as well, it has to be taken into account. You don't you don't want yeah. to take in unnecessary blows over no. a grudge match. So. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the only thing you could see coming would have been a real devastating knockout, uh, which yeah. no, you know, it happens in boxing, but you know, no one wants to see Amir Khan flattened on his back again, how he has been in the past. So yeah. it's just you know, it's it's never it's never a great sight when a boxer gets knocked out clean like that. And I think that was coming. Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, also, guys, moving on, on on the undercard. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know if you guys were, if you watched it, Rob, I'm sure you did. Yeah, I got uh, in very early. Yeah, there there, there was a fantastic uh, matchup between uh, Brad Rhea, sorry, Brad Ray, sorry, excuse me, and Stingray. Yeah, Stingray, that's it. Yeah, Brad, Mm -hmm. the the Stingray, uh, against Craig McCarthy, which was a a fantastic first round knockout. What did you make (sighs) of it, Rob? Wow. It was a um, punch of a night, wasn't it? I mean, I actually thought that it was going to be a, a right tear up. I mean, from from what I'd seen of them before and the build up, I thought, wow, we could be in for a good one here. But it was it was, it was, <laughs> it was an emphatic short one in the end. But um, yeah, what a shot. He absolutely cleaned him out, didn't he? Yeah, did you did you see it at all, Liam? The finish to that fight? I, I didn't actually know. I, I no. didn't, didn't catch it. But... Well, I'll send it, you a link. It, 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 yeah, <laughs> it, it was a first. It was a first round knockout. Um, Brad Ray literally it was three. Um, was it right crosses? Mm. Or was, mm. Yeah, and then and it was a, a left uppercut. Um, yeah. and it was just it was really quite a fantastic um end to that fight. Yeah. And, quite worrying as well the way he went down. It was so heavy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and it it was it was really was a prolonged prolonged sort of uh, defenseless attack, wasn't it? That yeah. sort of got him down the end. At the end, Brad Rea, uh, I keep saying, sorry, excuse me, Brad Ray was yeah. was say, saying that um, that power has been coming for a while. He knows he's got it, and it was just a case of of bringing it out. And I suppose going mm. back to what you were saying, Liam, this is uh, Brad Ray's twelfth fight. Is, is it is it a case for you that you think that the more fights you have in the ring sort of environment, that power will naturally build up? Uh, yeah, I think because you, you've got you've got you've got to take into account the fact that all these fight camps they they mount onto one another, and you know you're constantly there hitting the bag, getting snappier each fight. Um, so I, d- I definitely do think it, it will come, um, especially with me now focusing on it as well. Um, but yeah. again, it's, it, with this fight, it was a lot. It was a lot of um, I missed out. I didn't do the, the the normal fight camp. It was a lot more cardio and a lot less sort of weight strength training and stuff like that. So, but yeah, I do I do think it just builds over time, like you're saying. 
Yeah. Um, yeah another fight on the undercount, which I was very uh, impressed with, uh, I'm not sure if you watched this one, Rob, was uh, Adam Azim, yeah. who's a 20-year-old super lightweight boxer. He faced Jordan Ellison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, t- to start with, he came out to Hot Stepper. So that he's already, <laughs> he, he, he's already winning there, isn't he? Yeah, it's a banger, uh, to be fair. But, I mean, I, I, I found his performance uh, quite astounding for the, his age, a yeah. 20-year-old. Uh, he sort of dominated uh, Jordan Ellison, who's, who's you know quite a well-known journeyman. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He did the job, didn't he? I mean, he looked very silky. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how he gets on when he comes up against people with all due respect to his level. Um, you know, I think the same with his brother. Really, I think Adam, obviously, of the, the two, is the, the shining light at the minute. But um, yeah, time will tell. But. Um, yeah, he look he looks good. He's he's got he's got all the fundamentals and um, he's got a bit of bit of star quality as well, which is a uh, is nice to see because there hasn't been too much of that coming through in British boxing for for a while for me. Yeah, he he had that sort of I'm I'm going to say it and it's obviously cliche, but he had that sort of Prince Nazim sort yeah, of. Yeah, do you know what I wasn't going to say it, but I agree. I know. I, I I didn't want to say. It. I didn't want to be too cliche, but he he does have that sort of air about him. But he also, mm-hmm. for me, what I noticed, he has that sort of um, George Grove sort of stance, that low gravity sort yeah. of arms, left arm sort of swaying. You know, sort of. Mm. He's got that sort of stance. So potentially, uh, are we looking at someone who could push up through? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know what the undercard took a bit of a, a hammering? But um, I thought it was good because. <laughs> You know, you don't get see, you don't get sorry, you don't get to see um, any undercards where it's young fighter after young fighter after young fighter. I thought it was a great platform yeah. for him on, on the Brook Khan undercard. You can't you can't ask for more than that at their age. No, no, I agree. I, I, I thought it was very entertaining. Oh, um, and shout out to Tasha Jonas as well, finally getting the world title as well. That was brilliant. Yes, indeed. That that was a very good uh, fight as well, and it, obviously a fabulous achievement from her as well. So yeah, yeah no, good 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 call there, Rob. Um, but moving on um, to Josh Taylor and Jack Catchwell, I'll leave this to you, Rob, just to have a, a little bit of a rant before we talk about the fight. <laughs> but, that gives um, you that impression. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know you wasn't very pleased with it, but what, what, what do you make of it? I don't even know what word can describe how bad that decision was, to be honest. I, I've calmed down a lot now, yeah. but... Um, absolutely disgusting this is the best way of putting it i mean how how two judges gave it gave it to taylor is beyond me um i mean the judge who gave it to catterall um without the knockdown he'd have given a draw so none of them on paper would have had catterall winning that and i actually put a tweet out just before um the results were made. When the final bell went, I put a tweet out saying anything other than a, una- a wide unanimous decision for Catchell here is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. I didn't expect that. It, honestly, I was going to think you were in on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, what, I, it was, it was it's horrendous, mate. Absolutely horrendous. What, what, what did you make of it, Liam? Um, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm going to be reserved with what I say. Just in case any BBBSC people are watching it, of course, and, you know, yeah. I need the results in the future. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the wrong man won. Um, but I do, I do also think the first few rounds were quite. It was quite scrappy. Um, but you know, look, watching it from the camera and everything like that, and just seeing who was landing the cleaner shots and everything yeah. like that, it was it was definitely a catch-all fight. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, Josh I mean, Taylor fought his heart out at the end, and I, I, I thought you know he showed a lot of credibility. And I think it's unfair that he's getting yeah, it's not his fault. Flamed for it. It's I, the um, obviously my, the officials that need need to explain. But. Yeah, I mean, my, my my opinion on it is Rob's going to hate me here, but it, it, the, the the issue with this fight is is that it was a very it, it was a close fight in that the action was very close. It was very scattered. Yes. I completely agree that Catterall won the fight. There's no doubt about that. If, yeah. if, if you're looking at it, Catterall won the fight. But I think it was very close. And if you watch, someone made a comment that the rounds that Catterall won were clearly Catterall winning rounds. Yeah. Whereas the ones that Taylor won and the ones towards the end, you, you could have potentially given them either way. So it was just... I, I know the judges are being blamed for this here, but I just think it was quite a difficult fight to judge. And yes, Catchall won, and I think we all believe that, but it, it, it was very close. I just don't see how, I think it was Ian John Lewis, I don't see how he came out with a 1-1-4, 1-1-1 for Taylor. I mean, yeah. you got to remember, they both had a point doc, so right, that cancels each other out, yeah? Yeah. Jack Cattrall knocked Taylor down, so he yeah. he was already dominating the fight for me, and yeah. then and then he knocked him down. It was one of the back end um, back end rounds, mm. um, and then there was a the deduction because obviously Cattrall had the deduction first. So I just don't see how you can have Josh Taylor after all that yeah. winning by three rounds. It's it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, it is a nightmare. But again, you got the crowd jeering. You got the crowd cheering every time that, every time that you know Taylor's even throwing a punch. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't even have to land, and the the crowd's going crazy. Um, mm. so if it's it, crowd yeah, influence, though, there has I know, to be but something judge, done about that. There should be something done about it. But I mean, it, you, it it's not judging is 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 hard, and I do think it needs yeah. changing. But the I don't know. I feel like even the judges are getting a lot more heat from it than necessarily they, they, they should. Because I like I, like you said, I did think it was a close fight, and I thought it was scrappy. It wasn't clean clean boxing for a lot of it. It was a lot of no. holding punch hold punch hold, and you know, it was it was yeah scrappy. Yeah, I, and I, I think I, that was I, part I, of his uh, Catchall's game plan, though, to to drag yeah, him into that. Yeah, one hundred percent. But it, it 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 does make it harder to judge. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, I'm not denying the fact that Catcher won the fight. He yeah. definitely won the fight. There, there was a few things with the scorecards as well that just didn't make any sense. For instance, the, um, no, the, the 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 margin by which one of the officials had it that was that was mm. just off completely. Yeah. Um, we'll put it this way, right? Um, two two the two judges that had Taylor winning that fight, right? Yeah. So going into the last couple of rounds, I'm not saying they knew he was behind or. You know, they totaled up their scorecard. I don't know if they total it up as they go along, but both of those judges gave Josh Taylor rounds 11 and 12, right? Mm. Now, on one of those scorecards, giving him 11 and 12 was a difference between him winning or losing that fight, right? Yeah. The total punches landed. How many punches do you reckon Josh Taylor landed in round 11 and round 12? Um, I'm guessing quite a lot. Not three. many, sorry. Three. three. Jesus. Three, three in round 11, three in round 12. Between yeah. those two rounds, Jack Cattrall landed 18. Yeah, so and, and and two judges gave him gave Josh Taylor both of those rounds. But the judges the judges always favor the 
fighter that's coming forwards in the pro game as well. Three this, punches this though, that's not a lot, is it? You have, you have to, when you're counter-punching, you have to make it clear. Because mm. um, if there's any doubt, they'll just give it to the guy that was coming forwards. Yeah, it, it's a strange one, that. And, and having what re, re sort of watched the fight again, you, you've got Taylor, he's just in the middle of the ring for most of the fight. And you've got Catchall picking him off. And, and, and yes... That is absolutely, you know, fighting on the back foot wins boxing bouts. That's there's that's there's no doubt about that. But I think that what what Liam's saying, that sort of uh, more aggression and taking the center of the ring has ultimately won Taylor that fight. Where it is, it's unreal that it's happened, but it appears that's where the judges have got their scores from. So yeah. it's just, yeah. I think there needs to be clarification on on how fights are scored because you've said there about. Taylor being on the front foot and I understand that he was and he did have the crowd behind him but to land six punches across two rounds and win both of those rounds Floyd Mayweather made a career of winning um winning fights on the back foot do you know what I mean yeah, he didn't yeah. he didn't come forward and he didn't win rounds by coming forward so there needs to be some sort of template or they need to come out and explain how fights are or how rounds are awarded. That's my, my just my opinion. I, I, I completely agree because there, there have been, this isn't the first case of, you know, a bad decision in boxing. It happens in the amateurs. It happens, it happens all, all over the shop and there does need yeah. to be something sort of done about it. But, um, but we, you know, it's just judging's tough. Boxing's yeah. tough. And, you know, all the fighters want at the end of the day is a fair decision. Um, yeah, but Josh one, Taylor, I, I genuinely do believe Josh Taylor believes he won the fight. Yeah, because I can see why he would. I can see why he'd think that. What watching it, I I can. If you're just looking at, if it, it depends what perspective you're looking at it from. But when yeah. you look at the numbers, it's just it's just you can't like yeah. the numbers don't lie, do they? At the end of the day, I just felt so sorry for Jack Cattrall. You know, it, he didn't just turn up, put a good performance in, and that's the end of it. I mean, you know, you got to remember this lad has been waiting two years for that shot. He allowed Josh Taylor, he took a step aside. Yeah, yeah. So Josh Taylor could go and fight for all the marbles, win it, come back. And fair play, you know, Josh Taylor honoured his, his part of a deal. He gave Jack Catchwell the fight. Fair yeah. play, no problem. But Jack Catchwell, do you know, he didn't, he didn't get a penny for that step aside. He, yeah. didn't, get, he didn't get a pound. I, I feel like you have, to, you have to also appreciate that before this fight, not many people knew who Jack Catchwell was. Granted, not, yeah, not many yeah. people knew his name. He will, he will benefit off this massively. He Hugely. will, he will get another shot. He will have a very successful career. He so, will. Although but it's, I don't, it's I doubt he'll get another. And he's, he's probably down in the dumps now. At the moment, I think in the long run, if he just picks himself back up and he gets back out there, he's gonna, he's gonna cause havoc. So he will, he will. And I think if Taylor goes up and vacates the belts, I think that Catchwell will get a good shot. But I don't think he'll ever get another opportunity to go in the champion's backyard. To, for undisputed, I mean, how I know, rare is yeah, that? It, it is. And yeah. If he'd have, if he'd have been given the fight the weekend, it'd have been a bit like um, you know Cambosos and um, and Lopez. Cambosos is selling to the highest bidder now. He would have been in the, the same position. He'd have had all yeah, the belts, yeah, yeah. and suddenly, instead of getting a couple of hundred grand for his next fight, he'd be looking at five, six, seven million, and, yeah. and your life changed then, isn't it? And that's been robbed of him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the more you talk about it, the more desperate the story does get and your, your analogy rob of, of uh mayweather is is spot on because you know we, we, we all love uh mayweather for his defensive for his skills yeah defensive skill and everyone talks about it and how he fights on the back foot and how he gets all with, wins, to, it's, with it's, mayweather though it's a lot more it's a lot more ping ping move round spun you in the corner yeah of course ping. yeah you know i mean this was very 
very move ping ping hug. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't as as dominating. No, yeah. I agree. You know, it's... Well, yeah. there we go, gents. We there you have... go, opinions, eh, mate? I mean, look, look, we've all got different opinions of it there, and uh, and you know that's what we love about the sport, but. It's, um, it gives us so much to talk about, doesn't it? <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, I, I, I must admit, I, I, I do feel slightly better about myself having aired those views because it's it, it was one of those fights that's going to go down in history as be, being sort of controversial. But, you know, let's hope that Catchwell moves on and, and gets the uh, the fights he rightfully deserves. And again, yeah. for Josh, Josh Taylor as well, we all know he's, he's a very, very talented player. Uh, Boxer, it looks like he's going to move up through the, the weights now as well. He's got to, hasn't he? He's done yeah. at 140. He was, I mean, he looked terrible on the scales. Yeah. So um, hopefully both will will prosper from this. Let's hope. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it's a lot of media attention. So, I mean, Jack Catcher's next fight, that's going to be a sellout. So, yeah, exactly. for sure. Well, listen, yeah. guys, it's uh, that is uh, another session of um, Sport Your Song on Monday Sport Eve. Rob. Thanks for co-hosting once again. Thank you. It felt like therapy today. Exactly. And Liam O'Hare, you are a friend of the podcast. Welcome on whenever you want. Thank you very much. I appreciate and, it. Uh, again, 2-0. We can't uh, congratulate you enough. Well done, Liam. Um, I will actually say just right on the end there, I yep. would recommend giving uh, Tyler Denny, River Brent Wilson a watch. Um if you're if you're if you're about, you know, unfair decisions and stuff like that, I think you guys will really Really, um, you'll enjoy you'll enjoy the fight for one, but the decision was pretty. Yeah, pretty, send us a link, know. mate. Yeah, I will do. I will yeah. do. Also, um, back at you as well. I don't know if you saw um, the DAZN card on Sunday, but Jordan Gill. Have you seen the highlights of what he did at the weekend? No, I haven't. No. Oh my! I mean, I'll send you a link. But yeah, yeah. Pop me a quick the link. summary was he was getting battered, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely battered. It was a back end of a fight. At one point, um, the lad he was fighting almost got him in like a, you know, like a wrestling move, like a DDT. Oh, he did see this on, yeah. the, on the Instagram. He yeah. slammed him on the yeah. floor. Um, his eyes are in the back of his head. Absolutely done. Jordan Gills, he's he's perforated both eardrums so he can barely stand. Um, yeah. And he's pulled this punch out from absolutely nowhere and and just completely floored the I just, guy. I'll tell like, you what it reminded me of. It reminded me of, you know, Rocky Barber where he gets nut. Nice. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. right, you've nutted me now. That's not yeah. fair. Now I'm coming for you. <laughs> Honestly, it was absolutely amazing. It was one of the best like comeback wins I've seen because I actually tweeted about 10 seconds before he, he found this punch from the heavens. Um, I actually tweeted, Dave Caldwell needs to pull him out here. He's, he's getting badly hurt. Wow. And <laughs> honestly, it was amazing. Crazy. Fantastic. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll have another look at that. But um, all right, gents. Well, thanks again. Awesome, amazing. Yeah, brilliant. Cheers, guys. Thanks very much. Well done again, Liam. We'll see you for the next session. Hello, and welcome to the feature of this particular podcast on Monday Sportive, where we are speaking with football author John Sperling about his new book, which has been published today on the 3rd of March, Get it on. How the 70s rocked football. John, welcome to Monday Sportif. Hi, Alex. Thank you very much for having me on. John, it's an absolute pleasure. We're, we're so glad that you could come onto the show today and speak about your new book. And and it's being publication day. Publication day is always an amazing day for, for an author. Um, was it two days ago? I got my author copies through in, in the post and I literally... 
well, I, I drive home, but I, I would say I ran home from work to to open them up. So, wow. you know, the day you get your author copies and publication day is always, always amazing. To get your hands yeah. on the book and, and the, the front cover of the book is, is fantastic. It looks stunning. It's, um, you know, it's taken... You mentioned uh, it's taken you a while to to write the book. It's been a, a, a real labour of love. I mean, how long has, have you, the plans for the book been in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I've been a football freelancer now for twenty five years. I started writing football writing in the um, in the kind of mid mid nineties, around the time of Euro ninety six. I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher by by day, yeah, um, and I've started <clears throat> interviewing players from this era you know several of whom sadly are no longer with us yeah um, back in back in the mid 90s and I've always had the idea that I'd like to get to, to do this book but it, I don't know I could never quite get the get the structure right for it I've done a good few books in the meantime but this one yeah um, it, it took a while um to to piece all the interviews together and to finally decide on the structure and actually what finally nudged me to doing it I'll be honest was was lockdown I turned I turned right, yeah yeah. in lockdown and I thought well if I if I can't get it done now um with this uh this this time you know no commute to work and that sort of thing anymore um I, I you know I never will so that gave me the final push that I needed to, to yeah to I, I mean it, it, it's it's mind-boggling and it, it's it's almost quite amazing how you've managed to cram it into a book because when you think of the 70s you yeah. know um there was so much going on politically football as you mentioned in the book it almost transformed before our very eyes. You know, you had the colour TVs, you had the football kits, which were, were suddenly, you know, lavished with different sponsorships and different um, designs. Of course, you had the, you know, the barnets, the hairdos. And, <laughs> yes. and, and, and then you had the emergence, like you say in the book, John, you had the emergence of the sort of football sort of superstar, didn't you, of that era? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you, you talk about the length of the book. I mean, I signed a contract with Biteback that was 100,000 words. It should have been 100. As it is, it's 115. Right. And to be honest with you, it could be double that. And you still could not get all the stories in. I mean, yeah. my 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 reason for wanting to do the book, just to take one step back, is yeah. because um, I, I'm i sort of under the, under the impression that Football pre-1992, before the Sky era, is sort of almost vanishing before our eyes and being and being forgotten. So I really wanted this book to be about, the, you know, celebrating, um, you know, the, the, those those players that, that yeah. delighted uh, the fans. But also because I think it is the most cutting edge, the 70s of decades. So, you know, you, you talk about football being transformed before our eyes. I think I think what the main reason for that is probably the advent of, of colour TV. Yeah. Um, if you think that in 1970, the when the, the Mexico World Cup took place, yeah. only 150,000 families um, owned a, a colour TV. And that kind of um, obviously escalates massively during the during the 70s. Um, um, right, yeah, yeah. And it, and it kind of, it transforms, transforms football into, you know, literally uh, a, 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 a larger than life, colorful spectacle and i think what it does is it's the, the the new opportunities that come with um football uh in the telev in the television era of, of panels and of um you know matches in color and of match of the day and the big match being on itv and, and bbc yeah is that you have a lot of managers 
who start to, or sorry, you have managers who, who start to exploit that, like Brian Clough and, and, and Malcolm Allison, who become yeah. larger, you know, larger than life in, in that way. Um, but I think also it's 10 years since, you know, what, ni- 1970s, about nine years after the ending of the maximum wage. Yeah. So top footballers are now starting to earn decent money. And that means that they start to mix in different circles than they had done before. So yeah, yeah. The era of the birth of the personality in football, which, you know, we now take for granted. Yeah, it's quite funny you should say that, actually, because my, my dad will push on it later, was a Queen's Park Rangers supporter. So he, he was watching, you know, that particular team of, of the 70s, the mid-70s era. And he, he actually remembers saying that before some games... Um, he would be in in the pub or or the um, the stadium bar, and Stan Bowles would be standing next to him in the QPR kit. Sort of, you know, he would actually be leaning up at the bar. I mean, I don't know whether he was drinking, but he would he'd just be in and around the bar, and, and it became that, that that yeah. And and, and yeah. Uh, as he said a few times he, he had bet slips on him and all sorts. It was that sort of era, wasn't it, where the players they still hadn't segregated from the fans, had they? In that respect. No, that's right. I mean, I was very fortunate <clears throat> to have interviewed your your dad's uh, hero, Stan Bowles. Yeah, I interviewed him in in two thousand and four, I think it was, and he was he was he was amazing company. And I think that uh, of all players, you know, him and Rodney Marsh, who also was once uh, at QPR. Yeah, yeah. Um, they kind of embodied the new the new breed of what I call baby boom footballer. In other yeah. words, they're born after World War Two. Um, you know, the managers that that, that um, managed them he struggled to kind of, you know, understand what they were about because yeah. for them, you know, the era of national service and the, the, the maximum wage was was bygone. And they yeah. wore, as I think Rob Steen said in the, in the book, The Mavericks, they wore their nonconformity as, as a badge of honour. Um, yeah. But they were they were massively, massively accessible as well, because although they were earning good money, um, obviously, Stan Bowles with his his, uh, his gambling habit lost most of that, but they yeah. were not separated <clears throat> or kind of annexed from the from the fans. So it is true. Stan Bowles would have been in the pub, yeah, or the yeah. shop up until you know um, qu- you know quite near to kickoff. He, he denies ever being um, under the influence, but he did place his bets, and as you say, often went in there to, to socialise. I mean, he had a he often had a you know a full lunch. Before a Saturday kickoff, with all the trimmings, uh, you know, yeah. Saturday wow. lunchtime, how he managed to play uh, and delight the, the you know the Loftus Road crowds in the way he did with that, I have no idea. Oh, I know. It's, it's funny. It's funny yeah. you should say that actually, John, because uh, going back to uh, Rodney Marsh, um, I've I read recently that he he said you know. He was obviously a very good player for Queen's Park Rangers. But um, he, he said, uh, you know, they asked him about his skill. And he, and he said, I used to go out on the pitch at Loftus Road. And he goes, I would try, I would, I would just try to entertain the crowd. He said, so I would do different things on the football pitch because I felt that it would be what the crowd would want to see. And, mm. and it would be entertainment. And do you think the 70s, we, we had more of that where the players you know, realised that they were becoming these superstars and they had to almost perform on and off the pitch. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think you've got a, you've got a group of players like that, loosely termed the Mavericks. So you've yeah. got 
Um, you've got, you know, as we've discussed, you've got Marsh and Bowles. You've got Tony Curry, yep. who was Sheffield United. And he also later played for QPR, actually. That's um, right. In, yep. in, the, in the 80s, he played in the cup final, I think, in 80, 82, I think it was. Against Tottenham. Against Tottenham, exactly. But we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. sorry, no. Yeah. Um, you, you know, but, uh, and you've got Alan Hudson, who played for Chelsea. And, yeah, their, their kind of um, mantra was was to go out and entertain. And I think that that is what I cover in the book, is that in the sense that they were at odds with more of a win-at-all-costs mentality that mm -hmm. was kind of embodied by, well, I suppose, that you know, the Arsenal double-winning team of, of 71, the Leeds United team under, under Don Revy, and also, um, you know, the, the Liverpool team, which, which started to dominate by by the end of the 70s. So you've, you've got this interesting kind of clash because, I mean, Tommy Doherty's Manchester United were very, very easy on the eye and very entertaining as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Doherty played a, an amazing 4-2-4 formation with two wingers, Gordon Hill and Steve Coppel. Yeah. Um, and, and his, you know, that, that he instructed them to go out and entertain, which is probably why they didn't win the league. So you've got this clash between the entertainers and also between the, the you know, the, the kind of win at all costs uh, yeah. and managers. And, and that, I think, is, is probably at the, at the root of the book um, yeah, yeah. In, in the, you know, which which group win. Yeah. And and you know what? It's also it's also funny that you mentioned because obviously there, there's one one person who stands out in this era and we, we we can't not mention his name which is george best of course because mm. he, he sort of uh, personifies that era doesn't he george best he, he was the, he was by far the most gifted player certainly in england at the time um and yeah, probably probably fine. europe uh or the world yeah. but um anyway that you touched on steve Coppel, and i've spoken to a few people about steve Coppel over the years and he was he was a fantastic football player, wasn't he? he? He sort of he goes under the radar a little bit, but you know people who know about Steve Coppel, he was a pretty good football player, wasn't he? Yeah, he he certainly was. Um, I mean Manchester. I mean when you look back at football in the seventies, I'll be honest with you, not all of it has stood the test of time particularly well. But, yeah. Um, there are there are three teams that 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 kind of stick out. Um, one actually, I'm not just because I'm talking to you. It's true, but mm. the Queens Park Rangers side of '75 '76 under um, under Dave Sexton. Dave Sexton, yeah, uh, were an amazing team in terms of the fact that they played on the floor, um, and they had this genius Stan Bowles, yeah, who, who who you know dovetailed brilliantly in in the centre with, with Jerry Francis. Yeah, you know you've also got Dave Thomas, you know the, the winger who always played with his socks rolled down. Yeah, so that's the one. Very yeah. very entertaining side. Yeah, the, I think the Derby team under Brian Clough um, as well. They also are you know you look at them now and they are they are lightning quick. Yeah, and as you just as you just mentioned, Tommy Doherty's um, Manchester United. I mean, yeah. um, for. For a couple of seasons, they were probably the most aesthetically pleasing team in the country in terms of, of the way they played. Yeah. And, you know, it was an absolute joy with with um, Gordon Hill on, on one wing and uh, and Steve Coppel on, on the other. I yeah. mean, they were they were kind of nicknamed by by Liverpool, the Glams. Oh, right. um, and at first that it wasn't complimentary. It was meant to imply that they are all all flash, but no substance. But yeah. Very famously, uh, Manchester United did beat Liverpool in the um, FA Cup final in 1977, having oh. lost to Southampton the year before. 
and it was the you know the day that that Manchester United proved that on 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 their day and on on a one-off occasion they could beat Liverpool. Yeah, but not, yeah. But not over a forty-two game league season because Liverpool were ruthless oh, and, were. and had great players, but they were they were in it to win. Yeah. Um, and they were prepared to go further, if you like, in that area than United were. Yeah, and 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 also, I know we touched briefly on George Best, but hmm. um, are you of the opinion as well that he was he was the sort of uh, the standout player of that era? I mean, there was many many great players, but George Best does take a lot of the limelight on there. And what, what one of the quotes for the, uh, at the beginning of the book is George Best was the player who moved football from the back pages to the front pages, and yeah. in, in a way, it was him who did that, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was lucky enough to interview George Best for the book. I interviewed him in 2004. Oh, wow. And he was actually he was actually on, on he was actually in good health at that time, in, in a sense, because oh, he had good, his liver right, transplant yeah. the year before. Right. And he was actually, should we say, behaving himself, um, you know, a bit better. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought he was the, the most kind of beguiling, if you like, of all the interviewees that I, that I did or interviews that I did, because. Um, unfortunately, by the start of the 70s, he was already in decline. He was still a phenomenal spectacle and the goals that he scored were amazing. Yeah. But he was clearly indulging himself too much, you know, off the off the pitch. And, you know, when I when I spoke to George Best, I always and I, I found out later, I always thought he was highly, highly intelligent. And I know that later <clears throat> he was invited to join Mensa. I spoke to him. He was doing these really difficult um, um, Sudoku puzzles and crosswords. Oh, right. me. I didn't have a bloody clue what, what the answers were. Yeah. I just think he was wired differently from everyone else around him in the sense that he got, he'd had his fame. He'd had that breakthrough in the 60s. And I think at first it was fun for him. Yeah. And then he got bored with it. He got bored with the, the adulation. He was British football's first superstar in a sense that, not I don't mean just great player, but I mean he's a natural talent. And um, he was in an era of, you know, increasing publicity and money. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, he just found it. He found it a nightmare. Um, and he just, you know, didn't didn't enjoy it anymore. And at the same time, United were in de Manchester United were in decline in the sense that they weren't buying any new players to complement him. And I think he just got fed up with with carrying, you know, carrying the team. But yeah. um, you know the clips of Best in the early seventies are still are still amazing. But I think there's a certain sadness creeping into him because he knows that he isn't the player that that he was. It, it's funny you should say that because um, you, you mentioned in the book, obviously, it, it was almost like a a curse of having such an amazing amazing natural talent that um, w when he was younger, uh, people have said, and you've said in the book that he trained very hard in the early days to to be you know on top of the game. Hmm. Um, and, and you almost say that, that the fame was sort of almost all consuming and it, it, it sort of turned his head to the sort of superstardom as opposed to, you know, focusing on the pitch. Would you say that was fair or? Yeah, that's right. I mean, people who are naturally talented at something aren't always wired like the rest of us who have to work, you know, very hard to, to, to achieve anything, anything in life. But yeah. it is true that George West did train, did train very, very hard when he when he when he started. Um, playing and then and then he you know he as you say he he got tired he got tired with it and yeah he got he got derailed if you like by by the trappings of fame now of course you know had he not played football I don't know how his how his life would have would have turned out I mean he was quite kind of fatalist about it that perhaps he was hardwired to become an alcoholic because 
you know, George Best's mother also died from alcoholism um, in during the 1970s. So he was kind of quite faithful towards it in the sense that, well, maybe I would have become an alcoholic anyway, whatever, yeah. you know, whether I played football um, or not. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. It's, it's a sad and it, it's, it's a tragic story. I mean, he, he said to me, he hoped that people would remember him just for the football. Um, mm. And, you know, he is, he is massively remembered for the football. But of course, yeah. All, there's always sort of a, almost like a Shakespearean tragedy element. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't there? You know, that's yeah. just sad. So ju- just on, on the subject still, but slightly going off in another tangent, in the book, there was a really fascinating part that I quite liked, and I was, I was hoping you could fill us in a bit more, that Arsenal um, had signed Peter... Marinello and yeah. he was quickly dubbed the next George Best by the tabloids yeah. and, and they signed him from Hibernian uh, so what, what what was the deal with him I and mean, it didn't quite work out how it should have done at Arsenal did it no that's right I mean he was nicknamed um, London's London's George Best um, right. so Arsenal signed him from Hibs in 1970 uh, early 1970 it was for yeah for a hundred thousand pounds you know a lot of money a lot of money in those days and yeah i don't think that you know just as matt busby didn't really know how to handle george best i don't think that bertie me really knew how to handle peter marinello because oh, right. he's a, a scottish winger you know long hair good looking good looking fella yeah a bit like a bit like best and and you know before you know it he's presenting top of the pops He's opening supermarkets. He's doing fashion shoots and all this sort of thing. Oh, right. I see. Yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. And the photographer, Terry O'Neill, that I spoke to um, said that, you know, he felt terribly sorry for him because he was surrounded by guys who he Terry O'Neill felt wouldn't be around Peter Marinello if things didn't didn't quite work out. Right. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and Arsenal already had a terrific winger called George, better known as Geordie Armstrong who Marinello couldn't simply couldn't, you know, dislodge from the team. Oh, really? Um, and right. so he never became um, a regular in, in the in the starting lineup. He, he had he had chances, but never quite made it as as an Arsenal regular. Right. Um, and, you know, as, as Terry O'Neill said, um, unfortunately, um, you know, he, he drifted to Portsmouth and then, you know, he's had he's had quite tricky times off the pitch since he's you know his, his wife's been unwell he's had a few um financial problems as well right. um and yeah it just goes to show doesn't it that you know the trappings of of what's on offer in the 70s the big salary and everything like that well that's um, it yeah 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 but i mean with a lot of a lot of these players like you know like bowls like osgood and that kind of thing there isn't there wasn't the kind of network uh, you know uh, surrounding them because a lot of these players were actually quite vulnerable yeah if you, yeah if you look at you know bowls and hudson and and you know um uh rodney marsh a lot of them you know stan bowls had well-known gambling problems yeah a lot of them drank too much they're they're, they're you know stan bowls said a lot of the players he knew in that era were, were kind of functioning addicts right and, Blimey. and you know yeah. Some you know footballers today can become addicts of, of, of different types, but yeah, yeah. I think there is more of a more of a network of support around them than 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 there was. I think I, I think you're right. I, I, I think in, in the seventies they were more sort of left to their own devices, weren't they? In, to some degree. Yeah, I mean they're the first generation of of kind of football lads. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Stan Bowles pretty memorably said to me that you know they were the first generation of footballers with disposable cash. 
and right, yeah. Wolf disposed of the whole lot. You know, he <laughs> was he was yeah. joking, but you well, know, there's a point to it as well, isn't there? Yeah, never mind. That's it. So you, you mentioned John Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops, of course, it's the 1970s. It has to feature in the book, and yeah. and it does. It features with the um, the back home single, which was the England um, sort of. I don't know what you'd call it, the anthem for the Mexico 1970 World Cup. That's right. um, and you, you had an England team led by the heroic uh, South Sir Alf Ramsey, who had obviously bought the World Cup home in 1966. Yeah. So the, the 1970s World Cup in Mexico, what what quite happened there with, with England? Because they, they didn't quite, you know, having been the holders of the... Of, of the World Cup, we sort of went away with our sort of tails between our legs, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, first of all, just to go back to back home, I mean, back home is the first football record to go to number one. Oh, um, wow. And it was selling 100,000 copies, uh, I think it was a week, I think it was, um, uh, or possibly even a day. <laughs> the sales were, were, were crazy. It knocked um, the song Spirit in the Sky off, uh, off number one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, in 1970, England arguably had a better squad than they had in in 1966. Um, and you know, they, they, the Charlton brothers were still playing: Gordon Banks, Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Plus, you had new players coming in, like like Francis Lee. Yeah. But I think the the issue was that a it's it's a you know playing playing the World Cup in England and playing it in Mexico is different with the with the climate and everything of course, else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that the that the the seventy squad wasn't quite wasn't quite perhaps as united as it had been in in nineteen sixty six. And I think that what what Ramsey found is that a new generation of footballer was coming through. So he was finding it difficult to know whether to stick or twist with his his 66 boys and he took Peter Osgood from from Chelsea the hero of of Stamford Bridge yeah um and you know his relationship with Osgood was was quite was quite fraught I mean Osgood describes Sir Alf as being kind of like something out of an Ealing comedy with his, <laughs> his kind of you know his 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 um fake posh accent and that kind of thing. Yeah, because he, he, he was a Dagenham and Redbridge boy, wasn't he? Uh, he, was from, he was from Dagenham, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, and, and Ramsey thought that Osgood was a bit of a show pony, a bit of a show off. Right. He, didn't like, he didn't like players like that. So I think what the 70 World Cup shows is that you've got your, you know, the first signs, if you like, that the new generation of footballer was not quite to, to Alf Ramsey's taste. Right. It's difficult, isn't it, for managers? I mean, only I think Alex Ferguson has really done this successfully to manage different generations of players yeah, successfully yeah. because you know their their needs are and their you know their outlook is, is is different. But I think in in the seventy World Cup, I mean, England were quite unlucky in some senses in the quarter final in the sense that Gordon Banks, their big game goalkeeper, went down with stomach bug. Montezuma's revenge, as the locals called it. Yeah. Um, before their their game with with West Germany and Peter Benetti, the Chelsea goalie, great goalie, yeah. perhaps though the 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 occasion overawed him, and England were were two 0 up with from goals from um, uh, Mullery and Martin Peters, and then West Germany came back to win, you know you know three three two, yeah. um, and it's yeah, I mean if Banks had been fit, perhaps things would have would have been different. Um, 
but it's uh, it was it was a, kind of the beginning of the end really for Alf Ramsey. Yeah, and and it, it, it was funny because like like you mentioned prior, you know, with Steve Koppel and other teams adopting the sort of the, the wingers in in on in back in club football, Alf Ramsey still opted for that sort of very narrow sort of uh, formation, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, in in '66, um, you know, he stripped the team. He stripped the team of wingers, and yeah, he he mistrusted flair players. He, yeah. he thought that they were uh, perhaps a luxury that he could he could do without. And I think that that's kind of mirrored across the '70s, where players, you know, like we mentioned earlier in in the interview, like like Marsh and Bowles and Hudson, never really felt that they were um, appreciated. Yeah, um, for their talents and. You know, it's not just Alf Ramsey who overlooked those those players, but and Frank Worthington as well. It was it was Don Revy, whose Leeds team was certainly. I mean, they had Eddie Gray, who was a great winger, but again, uh, you, you know, Liverpool would not also have plumped for for these kind of kind of flair players. Yeah, um, and and that is at the root of of what goes on in in seventies football. Yeah, and and so I mean, so the the World Cup. Um, was viewed as being almost like a hero- heroic loss for England, um, that, that they were almost sort of pushed away by the, the Mexican press who were saying, you know, almost jump for joy, saying the champions are dead and yeah. go home England. And, it, you know, so it was a bit of a tail between the legs. But the um, t- touching on uh, Dave Sexton's QPR, obviously I'm a Queen's Park Rangers supporter, mm. and you, you had that famous, uh, well, famous for Queen's Park Rangers supporters and probably Liverpool supporters, the 1975-76 season, mm. um, which was quite a remarkable season in that Queen's Park Rangers had a you know fantastic team and, and were playing you know remarkably good football with Jerry Francis, as we mentioned earlier, Stan Bowles, uh, Don Givens was still playing, Frank McClintock, yeah, who I believe played at Arsenal. Did he at some point? Yeah, he was the Arsenal double-winning skipper in '71. He was a phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal captain. Yeah, yeah. and and of course, yeah. in, in yeah. goal for Queens Park Rangers, you had Phil Parks, who yeah. a, a lot of the players said if it wasn't for Phil Parks, they wouldn't have got anywhere near the sort of championship that season. So, um, it, for Queens Park Rangers supporters, and obviously myself, um, I was I was born in the eighties, so I didn't obviously have anything to do with this this particular season. It's all it's a, it's a very painful season to look back on, but it's it's sort of uh, smeared with. Uh, you know, a little bit of celebration in that it was the best Queen's Park Rangers team that's probably ever existed. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I mean, um, th- there was, there was a, yeah, I mean, it's the, the season started amazingly because in the first game of the season at Loftus Road, Quick QPR beat Liverpool. Yeah. Um, and Jerry Francis scored a fantastic goal, um, you know, having, having, um, in uh you know worked in tandem with with Stan Bowles. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. that I think that goal was uh, voted goal of the season as well. Goal of the season, that's yeah. right. And QPR were phenomenal at, at home throughout that throughout that campaign, but <laughs> they never quite shrugged off Liverpool and they're in this strange situation in in 76 where um um Liverpool were in the uh UEFA Cup final. Yeah, and so their their final game of the season against Wolves was held back for I think it was a couple of weeks or so. I think so. so. I think it's about yeah about a week and a half or a week yeah. and four days or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So the QPR finished, you know, had finished all their games and were yeah. top of the leagues. They had this agonising wait 
to see if Liverpool, you know, slipped up against Wolves, who were needed to win to avoid relegation. And Wolves yeah. the lead. Steve Kindon scored. Oh, really? But then, but then Liverpool, you know, you know, came back. And what's interesting is I think that you know it, it's it's rightly remembered that season for um, QPR's fantastic play and, and stand bowls and all of that. But it's equally memorable because <laughs> if you if you look at the, the stats at the end, David Fairclough. Who, were, who later got the name nickname Super Sub? Um, he scored in three or four consecutive games and 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 got Liverpool out of jail. Those last minute winners, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and it was it was really I think Fairclough who perhaps helped just about swing it in um, in in Liverpool's favour. Yeah, it's, um, and they had they had Kevin Keegan as well, but they were they were relentless and they were a kind of more of a machine. Whereas QPR were easier on the eye, but they were not perhaps as ruthless as Liverpool were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I said before, John, it, it's one of those seasons that every Queen's Park Rangers supporter, you know, has, has looked back on with with an element of fondness. But that that element of, you know, we could, what if, you know, we could have. It's sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very, very, very bittersweet. And it's like the Holland team in the 74 World Cup, isn't it? You know, everyone, yeah. everyone's favourite runners-up. It's, um, yeah, it's and yeah, there's also, very uh, bittersweet for people. There's a very good book written by um, uh, Stu Horsfield, in, and it's the... Um, it's about the 1982 Brazilian World uh, World Cup team, yeah. and again, yeah, I think it's it's called the glorious failure, or along those lines, and and that that looks at that 1982 Brazilian team because, yeah. again, you know, it's it's that bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah, everyone was in love with that 82 Brazilian team. They were they were so kind of easy on the eye, and it was it was in an era, you know, we're going on to the 80s now, but even, yeah. even then, we're in an era where. Um, live football matches were few and far between. You know, in the 70s, you, you had the FA Cup final, you had perhaps the League Cup final, you had the England matches, and, yeah. that's, and that's about it. So that yeah. 82 World Cup was the first time that many people had seen kind of, lo you know, loads of back-to-back -back football. And Brazil, yeah, I can I can remember them now, those golden shirts and the, the yeah. Spanish sun and all that. That's it. But yeah, they they didn't win like like QPR did in seventy four in um, in seventy six and Holland didn't in in seventy four. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So I mean that, that that sort of I think that sort of ties up the book. Of is there anything you want to add, uh, John, before we we just move on slightly to our final subject? Mm. Um, no, I don't. I think we've 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 largely largely covered it. I mean, I think one one thing that. Um, would uh, I would mention is that obviously the seventies were were the heyday of the FA Cup, and yeah. that gets covered a lot in the book in terms of um, kind of small town heroes, small town clubs like Hereford. Hereford, um, I was going to say Hereford, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, and Leatherhead uh, coming from from non leagues to to make a real splash, and we've got Sunderland and Southampton winning it from the second division. But yeah. by the end of the seventies as well. You know, English clubs are are winning European Cups, of course, um, yeah, with Liverpool and, and Nottingham Forest. So, of course, yeah. Um, you know, I focus on that. And just one final thing on the seventies is it is very much, I think, the era of the provincial clubs. So Derby and Forest, you yeah, know, win, win the league, uh, which would be unthinkable in in the modern. Well, I say that, although Leicester won it a few years back, but that's it's, right. Yeah. It's almost unthinkable 
in the modern era, giving, given, you know, the, the, given crowd figures and sponsorship deals and TV deals being kind of skewed in favour of bigger clubs. So yeah. there's a lot in there when when football was looked very different to, to how it did uh, today. Yeah, and no, I agree. So uh, people who are listening to the podcast, get it on is available today. It's the third of March. How the 70s rocked football it's i i've been privileged to, to to read the majority of the book and it's absolutely fascinating i am mm. gonna buy I, I am gonna buy a copy because it's got stunning uh, artwork on the front um it really is a glorious book so i advise people to have a look for that book in all good bookshops and of course probably on amazon on other retailers that's um, right what i want to touch on john because i've i've got you here and i know you're an arsenal a uh, historian you've written books on on yeah. on arsenal and teams of the and arsenal are a fantastic london club um no more so uh, personified but then then highbury and i wanted to just touch yeah. on highbury because it really was quite a glorious football stadium wasn't it highbury yeah, it was. I mean, I wrote the wrote the the book Highbury, the story of Arsenal in N five in in, and it came out as Arsenal left Highbury in um two thousand and six. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think the Arsenal fans of a certain generation uh, do miss Highbury. I think that, like many many older stadia, um, it was it was in in the heart of the community. Yeah. Which, which you know a lot of football stadia now are not in the sense that they are you know self-contained you, you can't see the trees or or, or the out you know you, you can't yeah. traffic outside um but it had those you know those glorious east and west stands those yeah. art deco stands. Oh, the art deco yeah yeah stands. and it was it was tight it was it was compact and yeah it was it was a, a beautiful classy stadium um yeah and it's yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously since Arsenal have moved to the Emirates, they've I guess in order to to pay for the stadium, they they've they've not been as successful as they were in those latter years at, at Highbury. No, and um, and ju just touching on, I mean, you've got the Art Deco East and West stands. Hmm. One of my not my first football memories, but I, I I've just got this image that I can never get out of my head, and it was it was the nineteen ninety three. Um, North Bank stand when they had that sort of bizarre character, uh, you know, sort of cartoon mural. Yeah, the mural. Yeah, and, and and I always remember watching, you know, match of the day or Arsenal in Europe um, mm. on IT. I don't know if it was on ITV or not, but I, I remember watching. Uh, and I'm, I always used to think, what 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 on earth's going on there with the North Bank stand? You know, because it was it was that that image is imprinted on my mind. Yeah, I mean, it was designed to kind of cover up in in some ways all the build all the cranes behind it. It didn't because actually the mural wasn't wasn't that high, and uh, you know you had that in a lot of stadia at that time because stadia were being rebuilt. Re, you know, made all seater in the wake yeah. of the Hillsborough disaster and the the, the Taylor report. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a funny atmosphere in a lot of grounds, but it was because there was no there was no um, fans at the North Bank end for just over a season they opened the, the new stand up in in uh, in time for 93 94 so the whole of the 1992 93 campaign was was um was was strange it was yeah 
it was just a three-sided ground. It's yeah, it was it was far from ideal. It, it, no. it really was. But, but do, um, do, you, do you remember? Was you did you go to the games in that season? Do you remember? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I stood on the on the clock end, which oh, I right. never never really stood on the clock end before or, or since actually. But that <laughs> was that was terraced. Oh, there we go. So it, yeah. it, it forced then, you to another part of the ground then. Yeah, so. that's right. So that yeah. was terraced. And then um, 1993, 94, they opened up the new North Bank stand and then they they seated the, the clock end as well. Oh, so right, yeah. Sort of mid-93, 94, it was, it was all seated. It was all seated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think the premiership, that it, when it came in, that there, there was something about that when they sort of, you know, they made most stadiums, even Loftus Road, all, all seaters, didn't they? So yeah, they, was... they had to be. If you, I think if you wanted to play in the top flight, they, uh, you had to have an all-seater stadium. Yeah. So t touching that, that there, there was, there's a, a, I'm going to call it a bewitching image that sums up Highbury for me. And I know many, many, there's been many vast, great players who have graced the pitch of at Highbury. But this one for me stands out and it's, it's Thierry Omri at the corner flag. And it's the last game to be played at uh, Highbury. He's wearing that uh, sort of maroon plum centenary kit or I, I can't remember what it was for but that image of him just sort of looking at the stands and sort of for, for one last time is quite haunting yeah absolutely I mean there was a lot of talk at that time that Henri was going to go um, and actually he decided to to stay although a year later he did go to Barcelona but you know cometh the hour cometh the man um, he scored a hat-trick in the last game of the season or the last game at Highbury against against Wigan yeah. and it, a stunning way to bow out. It was a beautiful day. As you say, they were wearing the, the maroon um, kind of black cherry kit. Yep. Um, and uh, when he when he scored the penalty, he got, you know, he theatrically bumped, you know, leant down and kissed the turf. And yeah. as you say, it was it was an emotional day. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, I, 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 I can't quite imagine. I mean, I'm a Queen's Park Rangers supporter. Mm. And I, I know they're talking about developing a new stadium, but I can't quite imagine being prized away from Loftus Road. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. I, mean, I think the only, the only, I mean, the good thing, I suppose, is that Arsenal are still in N5. And so what that means is that the pubs and the restaurants that, you know, you go to um, before the games, um, you, 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 you can still go. So if you've been going to, to Arsenal oh, I see. for years yeah. and years and years, your, your match day habits might not have changed. But, you know, football generally generally has changed. I mean, there isn't quite the, um, the, the sense that I think, you, you know, people used to sit together with their, with their um, friends, had been sat together with the same people for yeah. decades and decades. But I think that the, the clientele at football, in the top flight anyways, particularly has particularly changed. And, well, uh, you, you know, probably because of because of ticket prices. Yeah, and and, and what what I'm going to say, John, is that uh, I I have visited uh, the Emirates this season. Yeah, uh, I I went to watch Arsenal versus AFC Wimbledon in, in the FA Cup. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 I have to say, I'm I'm, I'm going to end this uh, chat about Highbury on on a high here. I was very impressed with the Emirates. I mean, it is a it's a stunning stadium to watch football in, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I, this season in particular, I think it's probably because the fans are coming back after after COVID. Yeah. Um, and I think that the atmosphere is is very, very upbeat this season um, in, in a sense that I think with we've got a great bunch of kids um, coming through. Yeah, um, you have. Oh, yeah. yeah. That. And for, I mean, I think for most clubs, but particularly for Arsenal fans, I mean, our most successful eras, like in 71, we had a team full of youth team graduates 
the teams in 89 and 91 that won the league, they also, you know, like Rowcastle, Thomas, Adams, yeah. Leary, yeah. they'd all come through the youth system. There's nothing better than seeing that. And I do think there's a feeling that that, um, that, is, that is happening uh, again. And that we've got yeah. a group of, of young kids coming through. There's a real togetherness there. And I think you saw that in the, in the two games recently against Wolves, where Arsenal came back. Um, either from having been a you know a man down at Molyneux or going down a goal a goal down at the Emirates and for yeah. that there is that fighting spirit in the team. And, and yeah, and t- touching on that, I mean, I, I I watched Martinelli that that night, and it, you know he is when you watch him in the flesh, he he's, he's a very gifted football player, and he, he he's got that extra element you need to become you know world class, isn't he? I mean, he's yeah, a very good right. football player. That's right. I mean, I think his injuries, he was out for almost a year with an injury that has set him back a bit, but he, he's very good. I mean, I think Arsenal are in the same sort of situation they were, probably around 86, 87, where they've got a group of fantastic young kids. What they need is they need probably, or definitely one, possibly two top strikers, I think, yeah. to, to add that clinical edge that they haven't quite got yet. You know, at times this season, they've struggled for goals, although they've got, they've got better. Yeah. Um, they they need that clinical striker, and I think that you know I'm, I I understand why Arteta let Aubameyang go without replacing him because he was on a, a hugely you know expensive contract, mm. um, and I think that they're hoping that they can grab top four, and actually in the summer be in a position to sign the players that they actually want to sign rather than feeling cornered into having to sign anybody you know which hasn't yeah. Been- gone well in the last few years for Arsenal hasn't I've it? I've got my opinions on Aubameyang and that's for another podcast but what I would say <laughs> is that if I was the Arsenal manager he would be firmly still in that dressing room I mean I I, I think he's a phenomenal football player and I, I, I would have done most things to try and keep that guy in the dressing room but yeah. yeah I think he's fantastic I mean, yeah. he, he had a fantastic season the year we won the FA Cup in 2020 he, he, he you know he drove the team mm. I mean since he signed that big contract he, he he hasn't he hasn't been the same and I guess Arteta's view is that if he's captain and he's late for training and and you know gather you know team gatherings I suppose the captain has to set the example but yeah I, I get it you know opinion well if if we make it into the top four without Aubameyang, Arteta will be a genius. And if you don't, <laughs> that's true. If someone, I suppose, some will never let him forget. But that, that's right. football, isn't it? That's it. Now, John, I've got one more question for you, and yep. this is this is going to sign us off. I'm going to take you back yep. very briefly to Highbury. It is October the first, mm-hmm. two thousand. Okay, and yep. there was a very memorable goal scored on the Highbury pitch that day by one Thierry Henry. Was you there? Do you remember it? Is that, that's the goal against Man United. That's the one, yeah. Yes. Yes, actually, I was I was there. It's what is the what it's I remember really well because at that day I was right at the top of the North Bank stand and then any of your listeners sat there. The yeah. roof came down. So when the play was at the opposite end where we scored at the clock and you had to kind of stoop down. Oh right. I think, wow. I, I think that I wasn't I think everyone was just taken aback for a second by what he'd done. The sheer impudence of receiving the ball on the edge of the box, you know, the the the, the rapid turn, the lob over his um his you know his his, his French international 
teammate in goal. His name yeah. escapes me for a second, the goalkeeper. The ball oh, Bart- Bartez, Fabian Bartez. Bartez, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. And, um, you know, Bartez's face when it when it happened. Um, it just, uh, it, for, for me, whenever, you, whenever I see that goal, cause I, I, for me, it's one of the best goals that's ever been scored in the, in the Premier, Premier League by any stretch. Sheer impudence. And... and 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 you know almost to the inch, absolutely yeah. perfect execution. The, the the way I look at it is the the world stopped and on replay on replayed because it was just it was just him and the whole world stopped, took a breath. It was unreal, wasn't it? Yeah, you to be for you to be there and witness that must have just been, you know, um, um, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I'm hugely lucky to have seen Henri in his pomp. I mean, I always also remember a game in 2001-2 season where Henri scored, um, you know, two goals past Barthez that day when Barthez made two horrendous howlers. But, I mean, it was the atmosphere, those those Arsenal-Man United games in those days, Wenger against Ferguson was something else. Oh, of course, I mean, yeah. It was the, the whole, the whole, the whole lead-up to the match, the whole week was all about Arsenal-Man United. Yes. Um, and uh, it, yeah, they were they were the two they were the, they were the two best teams in the country by by long chalk. Yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, John, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been and great. and we're, I'm, I'm we are certainly going to be buying buying the book. It, it looks fabulous, and it's just, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much, Alex. Anytime. Well, Rob, that was episode 12 of Monday Sport Teeth. How do you think it went? Yeah, it was good. Good catching up with Liam. And um, you can see he's definitely got a, we can hear he's got a spring in his step after what happened, you know, the other night. And um, yeah, it was a good bit of therapy to get all the uh, the Josh Taylor stuff out of my system as well. What about you? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, having a good old chat about that. And there were some really good points made in there as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and fa- obviously, fantastic to have John Sperling. Uh, on on the show on the episode this week uh and he again his his book is available get it on the 70s and how it rocked football it's an amazing book so um we shall see you in the next episode nice one cheers rob cheers follow us on twitter at at monday sportive ldn